from VOA, Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Joining me on the program is my current affairs colleague, Rick Pantaleo, author of VOA's Science in a Minute and host of the Science Edition of Press Conference USA. On this edition of the program, Amy Webb, author, futurist, and founder of Future Today Institute, joins us for our annual conversation about the future of technology and its implications for business, society, and politics. The Future Today Institute is a leading future forecasting firm now in its second decade. Founded by Amy Webb in 2006, the Future Today Institute focuses on how emerging technology and science will disrupt business, transform the workforce, and ignite geopolitical change. And speaking of disruption, the COVID-19 pandemic continued to be a major disruptor throughout 2021. So we will ask Amy how the pandemic is affecting the workplace, especially the use of remote meeting platforms, and if some of these changes may forever alter the nature of work, whether in the public or private sector. Amy Webb is the author of several books, her latest, The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. The book warns of the role nine of the world's biggest tech companies are playing in the development of artificial intelligence and how it could affect all of humankind. Today, Amy will talk about the technology trends that shaped 2021 and what we can expect in 2022 and beyond. And Amy Webb joins us via Microsoft Teams. Amy, as always, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm delighted to welcome my colleague and our in-house science, technology, and health guru, Rick Pantaleo. Thank you, Carol. So, Amy, in your 2020 annual Future Today Institute review, you warned, quote, our new normal is already here. It's continued disruption. And you said that we should not sit passively and allow change to happen to us without any of our direct involvement and that failing to plan is planning to fail, and that it's time to sort out the signals, create our organization's vision, our own lives, make strategic decisions, prioritize technology investments, and so forth. So, Amy, as we look ahead now to 2022, what do you consider are the major macro forces, signals, and trends shaping up to be? You know, we are gearing up for a wild ride in 2022, and there are some key themes that, regardless of where you are in the world, will start to take shape right before your eyes. So let's get started. Perhaps the biggest and most important theme is a really important technology platform. In fact, it's possibly the most important technology platform ever built, and that is biology. What if the miracle that created messenger RNA vaccines, which are available in many countries, not all countries around the world, but these are newer vaccines that are being used in the fight against the pandemic. What if that's less a once in a lifetime event and much more the harbinger of a new emerging biology age? Synthetic biology is a relatively new field of science that has been around for maybe 10, 15 years. And the goal of synthetic biology is to redesign organisms to have improved or enhanced functions. 
And pretty soon, we're going to be able to program living biological structures as though they are tiny computers. This is important because there are widespread uses for something like a messenger RNA vaccine beyond fighting COVID-19. This extends to the flu. There's a messenger RNA vaccine for malaria in the works. And beyond vaccines for cancer, for flu, for malaria, the same type of technology, which again is injecting new code into cells and reprogramming them for different things, this is what's going to allow us to fight climate change in new ways by re-engineering, for example, leaves to suck out CO2 from the air. It'll help us create cell-based meats. So imagine someday eating chicken, but the chicken was never actually attached to a living, breathing animal, yet it is still very much chicken meat. You know, this is going to unlock many new possibilities, but synthetic biology also comes with some significant risks that range from the fact that biology sometimes continues on its own, whether or not we want it to, to dual uses. Every time a new technology gets developed, there seems to be somebody trying to do bad things with it. So I do think, though, that given where we are with the pandemic and the amount of investment in synthetic biology, you're just going to hear a lot about that over the next couple of years. And that's true, certainly, of 2022. A couple of other key things to bear in mind, the metaverse, which I know at this point probably everybody is sick of hearing about. Facebook has changed its name to Meta. The CEO of Microsoft, Sachin Adela, has talked about his vision for a metaverse. And both Facebook, or I guess Meta, and Microsoft are talking about a permanent, flexible, work-from-anywhere environment. And again, I don't know that people are going to want to use cartoon avatars to sit through meetings. I certainly don't. But the fundamental structures that are being built as the foundation of this future are really important and are probably here to stay. And that ranges from practical applications like a digital twin of a city that would help with urban planning and design to digital certifications that would follow either a a news story, for example, or a luxury good or just something that people would try to intentionally tamper with or try to fake in some way. Again, some of those tools just make it harder and harder for people to spread information that's incorrect. There's some other things like decentralized finance and blockchain are going to help people in many communities, especially in Africa and Latin America, start to gain more ability to transact using new forms of mobile wallets. So even if you don't quite understand what cryptocurrencies are or how the blockchain works, effectively what we'll see going forward are just easier ways to bring more people into the financial ecosystem in ways that hadn't happened before. So I would say that those are three really important trends that sort of broadly speaking will impact us. But there's a lot of other things happening. Health equity I think will continue to be on the top of a lot of governments' minds around the world. We're seeing a tech clash now in China as uh, President Xi Jinping tries to hone the collective power of China's largest tech companies, that's Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, and direct that power more toward fulfilling some of the government's geopolitical ambitions over the next few years. We're also seeing some changes when it comes to space. And again, I know this is feels very futuristic and far out, but 
there are private space stations launching. There are constellations of satellites launching. And believe it or not, that does have an impact on individual people in all different parts of the world. So if you're living in a remote area where it's been challenging to get online, you could very well be getting internet from space sometime in 2022 at an affordable price. So that's kind of a broad perspective on lots of different things that we're looking at in the next year. Amy, that's just unbelievable. Metaverse, synthetic biology, you've talked about the space race, blockchain, all things that we'll drill down into. And for that, let me turn to my colleague, Rick Pantaleo, to follow up. I'd like to go back to what you were talking about earlier regarding mRNA technology and looking back to when the COVID pandemic was declared by the WHO in March 2020, experts back then, including Dr. Fauci, predicted that it would be several years until a vaccine could be developed and released to the public. Instead, several vaccines became available by the end of 2020 and looking into trends for 2020 and 2021, did you anticipate that the vaccines would be developed and offered for use so quickly? Absolutely, I did. And there's a good reason for that. So the technology that we now have available to sequence the genomes of things has has gotten pretty advanced. And I believe the the scientists who were initially looking uh, and had access to the virus were able to sequence it in just a few days. And again, that's because of some really huge strides that have been made in sequencing machines and technologies and in synthetic biology in general. From there, there were additional teams that used synthetic biology techniques to figure out the right code, so the right course of action to thwart the effects of the vaccine and basically sort of stop it in its tracks. And the way to think about this is like a police most wanted poster that you might see up in your community somewhere. Effectively, the messenger RNA code is like a little wanted poster that lives inside the body temporarily And it delivers a message saying, hey, look out for this coronavirus thing. And if you see it, fight against it. And then it goes away. So that technology is actually, it's been around for a little while. So the fact that we were able to sequence and to create an effective vaccine to deal with SARS-CoV-2, which causes the COVID-19 symptoms, you know, that all happened very quickly. And it really is a miracle. It's miraculous But it's also in some ways not surprising. What actually took long was the regulatory process in the United States and in many countries around the world. Before you can release any type of therapeutic to the general population, there's a series of clinical trials that have to happen. And those clinical trials require lots of data and just lots of people. And it just was going to take a while for us to get to that point. To me, this is not at all surprising, and part of the challenge here is that people, I think, got concerned that the virus happened quickly and then the antidote or the vaccine to that virus came online so quickly and people sort of mistrusted the speed. I think this is a case where it's, it's good to remember that science has been progressing on these issues for a long time, and just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's new in general. And I think if our public health officials had done a better job at the beginning of all of this, explaining that this technology is actually not new, that it's been in progress for years and years, and it's been used in all these different ways, it just hasn't been used for this type of virus in this way. I think if we had done that, we might not have the misinformation aftermath that we've been dealing with.
You're listening to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. My guest is Amy Webb, founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute, and that's a leading future forecasting firm. Amy is also the author of several books, including The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Joining me on the program is VOA's Rick Pantaleo. And this is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download from our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA and from many streaming services such as Apple Podcasts. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Chidi Goodness from Lagos, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, back to our special guest, Amy Webb. And Amy, you've brought up some fascinating topics. And I always like to go back down to earth a little bit with you. I like the geopolitical stuff. And that reminds me of China. Last year, you reported that Huawei and MegV, and that's one of the best computer vision companies in the world, built a facial recognition system for the purpose of tracking Uyghurs. China's ethnic Muslim minority that lives in the far western regions. And the companies reportedly built a a Uyghur alarm that would sound if someone from the targeted ethnic group stepped out of a boundary. What more do we know about these types of ominous developments, these surveillance devices that the Chinese are developing? It is a little tricky because unless you are living inside of China and more specifically out toward that region out west, it is really challenging to understand exactly what's happening on the ground. And I've never been able to get out west. It is actually pretty challenging as as a westerner to enter into those regions. So here's what we do know, based on reporting from journalists who are on the ground in the area. The CCP is working pretty hard to assimilate Uyghurs into the rest of Chinese society, which is to say, making it challenging for them to practice their religion, forcing them to speak different dialect, forcing them to adopt different names, different cultures, and so forth. And I think there's probably a long list if you are interested in researching this a little bit more. It's a long list of problems and and human rights challenges. So what does that mean? What it means is that China has a a history of what are called five-year plans, and they've just started their 14th five-year plan. And this plan, broadly speaking, sort of overviews the country's strategic vision and how it's going to execute against that vision over a set period of time. China has not always been great at executing those five-year plans, but with Xi Jinping currently leading the charge and a political party that's really following in lockstep with him, we're starting to see some serious advancements. And I talked about synthetic biology earlier, but synthetic biology, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, as well as things like advanced manufacturing and geoengineering, all of these things are key components of the 14th five-year plan, as is telecommunications. And this is kind of a staggering number, but in the past year, the number of 5G mobile users in China spiked, so increased 576%. This may not be so shocking if you had basically nobody online and suddenly everybody online. That's not actually what happened. What's happening is that there's a national rollout of 
high-speed, low-latency broadband internet connection with a national network upgrade. So there's a lot happening in China quickly. And part of this is, again, China's ambitions to supersede the United States as the sort of global hegemon in different areas. That should have a lot of people concerned, I think, because, you know, if you are concerned about human rights and freedoms, you may not align with China's ideas. And this particularly impacts, I think, Africa. Absolutely. Um, so Ch- China's massive Belt and Road Initiative, it's, it's sort of steadily been moving into Africa. And that influences everything from telecommunications networks to local financial transactions and institutions. You know, and in some regions, you may not feel that as potently. But in other places, if you have more autocratic leaders, those leaders may want surveillance technologies to keep track of what people are doing. And they are sort of outside the watchful eye of other countries and allies around the world. I think it's also important to note that the CCP has been in the process of establishing its first military base on Africa's Atlantic coast. And at the same time, you've got sort of competition coming in from the U.S. So Google has announced a billion-dollar initiative to help seed and lay the groundwork for high-speed Internet throughout Africa. Facebook has made similar announcements, although the dollar amount was lower. And I think in the case of big tech, U.S. big tech, this is about getting more people online so that they can establish small businesses and create local economies that thrive, which, let's be fair, ultimately feeds money back to these big tech companies. So Africa's, I think, starting to become sort of a international zone that may be caught up in the crosshairs between China's government's ideas for how it will exploit the continent and big tech companies who think that that, that is the next legitimate place that they can grow. And I, I just, again, I think that that puts African nations, unfortunately, in a really rough position. Amy, just a very quick follow-up on that. So should we be worried about Chinese technology like Huawei, ZTE, which the Trump administration had designated as national security threats, as well as maybe TikTok, WeChat? I mean, are these inherently worrisome because they are being promulgated by the autocratic Chinese government, you know, very much influenced by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP? Let's look what happened the past few months in China. We've got a very high-profile tennis star who posted a really concerning message on Weibo that she had been sexually abused by a very high-ranking official in China. That message was immediately scrubbed, and not too long after that, all references of her name you know, were immediately scrubbed on all social media channels. And if anybody attempted to talk about it, it got scrubbed. Mm-hmm. And then nobody heard from her or saw her. And weeks went by and then suddenly she's making sort of strange sounding proclamations in text. So written saying that the previous communication was a hoax, it was false, and she's fine, and everybody go back to your business. I mean, there's strange things like this underway. And the bottom line is that there is a history of censorship. The nail will get hammered if it's not in the right spot. And I don't know how that's going to work in places like Africa. You know, I think that there's a trade-off. Certainly, infrastructure is needed. Certainly, investment is needed. However, what will that mean going forward as an outside nation attempts to dictate the terms. I mean, 
Africa's, how many countries in Western Europe, countries all over the world have been trying to colonize Africa over and over and over again for millennia. This is just the latest version of that, but it's being done through technology. And I think we're going to have to wait and see what happens, but it would be a mistake for Western democracies to turn their heads and look the other direction. I'm really hoping that just as China has put their diplomats on the ground to forge new relationships, that we are all willing to pay more attention and understand the community and what's happening in these countries. I don't think anybody wants some great Western whatever hope to swoop in and tell everybody what to do. I mean, I I think that's that's how these projects keep failing. One of my favorite stories in Africa is actually Rwanda, which everybody probably knows managed to survive and get through a horrific genocide not too long ago. Today, Rwanda has become a major tech and innovation hub. You know, who would have seen that coming in the early 1990s? So there are some wonderful success stories, and this is due to local innovation and local creative communities and really smart technologists and people who are collaborating to build the future. We'll have to see what happens when other countries swoop in and and try to sway them in a different direction. I I hope that doesn't happen. Amy, real quickly, before we run out of time here, a big aspect of technology meeting economics is cryptocurrency. Can you give us a brief overview of cryptocurrency and how it's going to impact everyday people? So cryptocurrencies are the way to store money. So this is money at rest. And you can use cryptocurrency, which is mathematically backed in a variety of different ways, the way that you would use traditional local currency you might have. The key difference is that in some cases there's scarcity, in other cases there's not scarcity. You know, there's lots of different competing platforms. There's actually lots of different currencies. Ether is the second largest cryptocurrency by market value. Most of the time when we talk about cryptocurrencies, people think about Bitcoin, but um, Ether is actually pretty big. It hit a very high peak in December of 2021 at around 4,700 US dollars. There's another competing crypto and platform called Solana and its currency is Sol. It was up 12,000%. I mean, part of what we're seeing is just crazy volatility. And on top of that, there are cities launching their own tokens and cryptocurrencies. The city of New York, the city of Miami, We've got the city of Austin in the United States that are launching their own versions now. I I think they function a little bit, honestly, more like a municipal bond. And El Salvador, I think, as a lot of people know, is now accepting Bitcoin as an official legal tender. Meanwhile, in China, the digital yuan or e-yuan is going to be used and rolled out nationally. And I think that there's a pilot in the works to have a major fast food company start accepting that as digital payment. So there's a lot happening. I think the challenge going forward is which one of these currencies to use for what purposes and in what ways. So I think we're at the beginning of all of this. And for those listening, if everything that I've just said feels a little confusing, maybe, you know, in 2022, your goal should not be to become a crypto miner or investor, but rather just to learn a little bit more about how these current cryptocurrencies work and where they're being used and some things to keep in mind. There are some regulatory hurdles and challenges ahead. This is a largely unregulated marketplace. And therefore, at the moment, cryptos are being used 
for money laundering or to buy and sell things that aren't traceable. Whereas if you used a traditional form of currency or you tried to launder traditional currency, that would be more of a challenge. So, Amy, you know, again, turning back to Earth, so to speak, you know, regarding, for example, you mentioned Meta because Facebook rebranded itself as Meta. Has anything fundamentally changed or was this CEO Mark Zuckerberg's way of deflecting from mounting criticism of the company's algorithms, the way they promote sensational, often false information, even hate speech and conspiracy theories like we saw the big lie about the 2020 election that Trump actually won when he really did not. You know, I think that there have been a lot of name changes. Uh, Facebook was not the only one. So Facebook rebranded itself as Meta in 2021. Square, the payments platform that was founded in part by Jack Dorsey, who also co-founded Twitter. Square has rebranded itself as Block in an obvious nod to blockchain. So I think that there are lots of things happening. And certainly in Facebook's case, it could have to do with trying to deflect some of the criticism it has been facing for the past year. But I think the other thing that's happening is that there's a rush to plant a flag in these new digital realms and to become the sort of leader in making decisions, whether those have to do with interoperability and standardization or what the ecosystem looks like or even what the investment cycles look like. You know, I think that there's sort of this chase to divide up the next iteration of the web, maybe web 3.0. That's, I think, what's happening. And and therefore, it is pretty important to pay attention to what these companies are doing, even if you don't yourself use some of these technologies. And Amy, we would be remiss not to talk about climate change briefly. In 2021, we saw more drought, wildfires, tornadoes, other extreme weather events in the United States and elsewhere. We saw flooding in Germany another earthquake in Haiti. And of course, despite pledges to reduce greenhouse gases at COP26 in Glasgow, the world's biggest emitters are still not doing enough to mitigate global warming. In fact, you said in one of your papers that India and China weakened language to phase out fossil fuels and they refused to accept liability for extreme weather events. What's your take on the future of trying to mitigate climate change? I just don't think it's realistic that all global leaders are going to get together and totally align on the best path forward. It hasn't happened before, and I I just don't see it happening in the future. So rather than everybody coalescing around one big thing like reducing CO2 emissions, which is a really difficult nut to crack, instead, I'd like to see 100 initiatives that are all coordinated where we can get a constellation of alignment in different ways Because we're going to need lots of different solutions to attack this pressing problem. And those can range from safe geoengineering to using synthetic biology to engineer artificial leaves that can suck out some of the CO2 to enriching phytoplankton so that they can feed their local communities within the oceans to make sure we've got more better wildlife and also better oxygenated air around us. There's lots of different things that we could be doing, but this is going to require us to change our mental model. And the trick is that changing our mental model can be a difficult thing to do. So I would encourage all those listening to lean into uncertainty and to be curious about all of these new technologies on the horizon and for government leaders to continue the work that they're doing, but also be open and flexible to a myriad different approaches, all complementing each other on a sort of flywheel of progress. I think that's a much smarter and more realistic approach to deal with the climate emergency. 
And Amy, as we enter 2022, we're dealing with COVID-19 yet again. We thought we had perhaps conquered the worst of it last year, but Delta and now Omicron have raised their heads. I assume that this will still disrupt our lives and the workplace in the coming months. Right. Well, you know, we are entering year three of this global pandemic, and we need to get serious about making sure that it's not just wealthy Western nations or other wealthy parts of the world, China, you know, Russia, that it's not just these nations that have antivirals, that have medications, therapeutics, vaccines. We really need to make sure that this is distributed more equally and equitably. Some of the challenges we're facing, they're not going to go away. So I think that's one big takeaway. I think the other key takeaway is that if we've learned nothing over the past few years, it's that we have to be more flexible and we have to acknowledge the situation that we're in, have a clear vision of where we want to go and be willing to recalibrate our steps to get there. This is at the heart really of what a futurist does. It is thinking all the time about alternative futures and selecting the best possible path forward. Amy Webb is author, futurist, and founder of Future Today Institute. Amy Webb, as always, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your terrific, unique insights. We wish you a happy and healthy new year. Thank you to you as well. Press Conference USA was recorded and produced in Washington. Joining me on the program was my colleague and VOA science guru, Rick Pantaleo. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. 